Good morning, church. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, grab it and go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to point one thing out. If you're on the front row, this was sitting in your seat. If you're sitting in not the front row in the seat back in front of you, there's this piece of collateral. looks like this. If you flip it over, it's just an update on where we are in our ministry operating budget. One of the things that we want to do here at the Church of 1122 is just be be authentic and open and transparent, and particularly in our finances. If you're a visitor with us, then you will recognize that we did not pass the plate uh, during the service, and you're beginning to think, I really like this church a lot. And uh, we don't do that here. We don't pass the plate. And in fact, if you're visiting with us, we don't want anything from you. We just want something for you. Uh, The way we do tithes and offerings here, it's just for our regulars, the people that would call this your church home. And uh, all throughout the Bible, it says that, that people would bring their offering to the Lord. So you have to bring your offering to one of the boxes around the side, or you can give electronically, or you can give online. But that's really just for, for uh, you know, people that consider this their church home. And we also want you to see that we don't hand this out because we are in dire need and things are tight. We're trying to shake it up a little. But in fact, uh, we're doing exceedingly well. Um, we have received, because of your generosity, and, and mine too, I give, so because of our generosity... Uh, we have given well beyond what we had budgeted, and we have spent less than we have budgeted. And so, you know, if that ever happens in your house, that's always a positive, right? Amen? And, uh, and so we just want you to see this. And for some of you, you don't really care, but for some of you, this is very, very important. You know, you want to look, especially if you are investing into, in the kingdom of God through the Church of 1122. So every quarter, this, some kind of report like this will be uh, in the seatbacks for a few weeks. So feel free um, just to take that. And also at the bottom of this little graph, it just lets you see um, how we divide up the giving here and, and what the dollars go to. And all of the dollars are tied to ministry because we are a community that seeks to glorify God. And like just last weekend, 66 people professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. Isn't that crazy? And so all of those ministries, all the mission trips, all the things that we do, we're able to do because of your generosity, and then we just want to be good stewards of that and, and show you where it's going, so that's for you. So let's pray, and then we'll do Bible study. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that, um, that you so love the world that you gave. You gave it all. And so, Lord, we're honored that we could be stewards of what you have given us and that we could bring back to you what is already yours. And God, we thank you and we, you, and we praise you that you have been... Just by your grace, you've been using um, those resources here, not only just in this part of Jacksonville, but literally to the ends of the earth. And so, God, as we open up your Bible, God, we thank you for the inspired Word of God, not just historical documents and ancient manuscripts, but, God, the inspired Word of God. And, God, I pray that today your Word will do exactly what you promised in Isaiah 55, that it would do what it was supposed to do, accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Just like the rain falls to the earth and produces a crop, so may your Word produce a crop this day. Holy Spirit, may you use the power of your word to pierce us to our very soul. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we are in week two of this series called On the Road. So Acts 13, beginning in verse 44, says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. If you remember last week, Paul and Barnabas, they go into a synagogue they preach the gospel, just the unfiltered gospel. They are not um, rude. They, they, they are very polite in the way they talk to the brothers and sisters that are in the synagogue. They're not just trying to be rude and offend people for just to be offensive. But they do share the gospel, and the gospel is offensive in and of itself. 
And so they share that it's not by law, it's not by um, you obeying all the rules that you enter a relationship with God, but, but by what Christ did on the cross, that through what Christ did on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection, we find freedom and forgiveness. We find freedom from religion, and we find forgiveness for, from being rebellious. And that whether you're rebellious or religious, everybody needs Jesus, and everybody comes to God through Jesus. And so they got all excited last week during that sermon, and they said, can you come back next weekend and preach? And so that's what verse 44 is. He shows up the next weekend. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So there's one thing that a lot of religious people have in common, and there's, it, often religious folks are jealous, and that jealousy is rooted in insecurity. And you don't just see it in first century, like Judaism versus Christianity, but you often see it even today among other churches. You know, one church starts blowing up and another church gets jealous and said, well, they're not doing it right because they didn't do it this way. Or a ministry of God, for whatever reason, just decides to just kind of show up and blow up a ministry. And then there can be, um, it, it can really be revealing to other people's hearts uh, in how they respond to what God's doing, not in their ministry, but in someone else's ministry. And one of the things that we've gotten to experience here at the Church of 1122, which is just one of the coolest things ever, is the way some other churches in town right around us have treated us. Because, you know, we're the new kid on the block, and when we first launched, I said we're like a big 200-pound baby. Well, now we're like a 700-pound toddler. You know, we're kind of goofy in our diaper, and we're drooling and a mess. And yet there are some churches around us um, that have just treated us with such grace. Celebration Church has just come alongside us and, and been being big, just, just supporting us. I mean, almost every day of the week, there's somebody from the staff of Celebration Church, from Pastor Stovall's church, and they show up here to help us plug in new TVs and show us how to run stuff. And Pastor Stovall has even taught at our, um, at, at our staff meeting and Chet's Creek Church, just right behind us here, a couple of blocks, you know, a couple of streets. Um, they were here to help us just get moved into the building and new life in partnership with Providence um, School, you know. Uh, uh, Bishop Van Gaten has been here and attends here a lot and has preached from this stage. And there's just been all of these churches, and then not to mention Beach United Methodist Church, right? That's like our parent church, that they birthed us. And it's really cool to see not the jealousy among churches, because it'd be real easy to, to just say, well, they must be doing something weird because it's growing so fast. But that hasn't been our experience. We've got some churches in Jacksonville that have just been stacking hands with us, coming alongside us going, yeah, you are, you are clumsy and awkward and you are a 700-pound toddler, but we love your big self and we're praying for you, okay? And that's kind of what's happening. And in fact, um, um, I'm the only elder present here today because because the four lay elders on our elder board are at a church in Dallas, Texas right now. They are in service right now. Um, there's, a, there's a pastor there. He's my favorite pastor to listen to, like on podcasts. His name's Pastor Matt Chandler. And, um, and he, he pastors a church called the Village Church. He took over about 10 years ago. It was a dying Baptist church with about 160 people in it his first Sunday. Today, I think there's four campuses with over 10,000 people at their church. And so what the elders at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas did when they sort of heard about what was going on here, they reached out to our elders and said, why don't you guys come on out here and, and maybe we could just walk through some of this stuff together and we can help, help you walk through some of the, you know, avoid some of the landmines that maybe we stepped on as you experienced this explosive growth. And so our experience has been so far that 
that people here in Jacksonville and literally around the country have not been jealous but have been, um, because they are secure in who God has called them to be, and they've come alongside of us and prayed for us and supported us. And let me just tell you, church, and we will be that kind of church. We will not be critical of other pastors and other churches here in our city or anywhere else, but we are going to be that kind of church that comes alongside uh, other churches in our city and pray that God blesses them in that church like he's been blessing us and ours. Amen? But that's not what's going on in the first century. All right, so. <clears throat> but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In other words, um, at first, they, the guys and girls in the synagogue, they liked this message of grace, but then they began to think, no, this message can't be for everybody. You see, we deserve it because we've earned it, and by thinking they've earned it, they disqualified, them, disqualified themselves from receiving it. By thinking they were worthy of the gospel, they really um, made themselves unworthy of the gospel. The only way to be worthy of the gospel is to know that you're unworthy of the gospel, which makes you worthy of the gospel. Confused? Well, welcome to the New Testament, all right? That's how it goes. And so he says, so now we're going to go to the Gentiles. Now, this is a major shift, major, major shift. We learned last week that the, that the hub or the base camp of Christianity has now moved from Jerusalem, the holy city, to Antioch, which is nowhere, and, and now the, the, the message primarily will go not to the chosen ones of God in Israel, but now the, primary, the message primarily will go out to the, the very ends of the earth. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, he's going to quote Isaiah 49, 6, and he says this, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, um, this isn't plan B. It's not like God tried to save Israel, but he wasn't getting enough converts, so he said, hey, we need to try out a new market, you know, because the market share amongst the Jews doesn't work, so maybe we'll go and reach the Gentiles, and maybe we'll get a better, uh, you know, better saturation there. Paul's saying, remember, all the way back to Isaiah 49, or you can even all, go all the way back to Abraham, that, that Israel was called out to be the chosen ones, not for their sake, but for God's sake. That they were supposed to be a city on a hill, a light in a dark world to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. They weren't called out to say, hey, we're special because we're chosen. They were just supposed to be the model of what it looked like to have a right relationship with God. And so, and so Paul says, this is actually a fulfillment of what God had planned on doing. That now that we're taking the gospel to the Gentiles, it's exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. If you remember seven months ago when we were all the way back in chapter 1. And Jesus says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's where it started. And Judea, so we're going to, all the surrounding counties. And Samaria, that means we're going to take the gospel to people that you don't even like. And then to the very ends of the earth, and we are the ends of the earth. And he's saying this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You see, the gospel demands a response. The gospel is a dividing line. And every time the gospel is preached, some people's hearts are hardened and others are softened. Some people respond to the gospel with joy and elation. And some people respond to the gospel with, with how dare you talk that way to me. I mean, it is a dividing 
line because he shares the gospel and some of the jealous Jewish people revile him and then some of these folks, some of these Gentiles, they rejoice and are filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, I see it every single week from here because I have the same message week after week after week. We, we typically start out with welcome, wretched, black-hearted sinner, and that, that's, but that's just the beginning, right? That should be like just the very introduction. It's, that, that's the condition that we find ourselves in. And then move quickly on to, but Christ loved you anyway, in spite of you. He loved you so much that he came to the cross, died, shed his blood for you, took on the sin debt that you had incurred, and he paid it to demonstrate his love for you. And if anybody would surrender their life to him, then, then you're part of the family. And there are some people that hear that message and cross their arms and look at me and go, I ain't singing the songs, and how dare you, and how could you think that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, and I'm too smart for that. And you get some bitterness, and how dare you call me a wretched, black-hearted sinner. And I go, I know by the way you're responding, you're demonstrating your black-heartedness, all right? And yet, in the same message, in the same message, other people, you don't even get the wretched, black-hearted part out, and they go, oh my gosh, I know, and they raise their hands and cry and check all the boxes on the tear-off and go to the Connect Center and go on a mission trip and get in a group and serve and just, and it's the same message. And for, for whatever reason, some people hear it, and, and when they're ready, the Bible would say when they have ears to hear, then their heart is soft, and they just walk right into it, into that invitation, and then others just, just are just hardened by it. But the gospel always demands a response, the way the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And every time I read that triumphal procession, I think of um, the Christmas parade in Dillon. And, you know, it'd be this triumphal procession and Santa Claus was on the fire truck at the end throwing out candy. That as a Christian, that's what we do. We're on this, where it's like we're in this parade and we, we're throwing out the gospel in the way we live and through our words, you know, just like Santa Claus throwing out the candy at the end of the parade. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one of fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. In other words, the gospel goes out and it's like an aroma. As a Christian, we're supposed to walk through this world spreading the aroma of Christ. And to some people, it smells like the stench of death. And to other people, it smells like the aroma of life. And some of you right now, over the past few weeks, that's been happening to you. And you can't even believe it. In fact, some of you can't believe that you're at church for the third weekend in a row, and it ain't Easter or Christmas, and you're still here again, and you don't even know why you're coming back, but every time you come back and you hear about this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you've got questions, and you've got what about, and the good guy, and the island, and the dinosaurs, and you've got all that stuff, and, and you've got some church history, and some church background, and you've been beat up and burned, and rightfully so, you should probably hate the church, and yet here you are again, and that aroma starts going, and it smells like life to you, and you're going, dang it, I think I'm becoming one of them, and you are. That's what's beginning to happen. And if you talk to any believer in this room that would be honest about their walk with Jesus, it happened to us too, and it was not our idea. That the aroma of the gospel of Jesus, we just couldn't unsmell it. Then he just began to draw us unto him. And then he goes on to say, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So he shares the gospel, and as many as 
were appointed to eternal life believed. So the good news, the good news, folks, is that God saves, that you don't save, that you didn't choose God, He chose you, that you didn't have to clean yourself up to be presentable before God because He reached down and saved you in spite of you, in spite of your tendencies, in spite of your sin, in spite of the promises that you broke to Him and yourself, in spite of all that, that God saves you. The theological term here would be called the doctrine of election, that God saved you. He didn't save Him. The best way I know to describe it is um, when I was about in the second or third grade, my daddy used to take us rabbit hunting all the time, okay? And, it, and if you're an animal lover, you know, look, we love animals too. We just love them kind of with gravy. You know what I'm saying? It's just different. So, <laughs> so we go hunting, and, uh, and we go rabbit hunting, and, and, and my dad bought us some, some rabbit dogs, some beagles. And so for Christmas one year, we got some puppies, me and my brother, and I got a little girl beagle, and I named her Daisy Duke, all right? And I named her Daisy Duke because I was convinced that if the real Daisy Duke found out that I named a puppy Daisy Duke, then she would come to my house and fall madly and head over heels in love with me, and we would be together forever, all right? And so, and in fact, at, at one point, I was going to call the real Daisy Duke and tell her, so I got the, the white pages out, and looked, I was trying to look up Daisy Duke. And so, if you're under 30, there used to be this book with everybody's number, just Google it. All right, so anyway, <clears throat> so I had Daisy Duke, and my little brother, he, his beagle was named the Incredible Hulk, so we had Daisy Duke and the Incredible Hulk. And every Saturday, we'd go hunting. And so one, one day, we go out, and we're walking through the woods. And I was about in the second or third grade, you know, with a shotgun, because that's probably safe. And, uh, and we come up to this, this little creek or stream. It's maybe 10 yards wide, and it was freezing cold, and it was frozen over. And so Daisy Duke goes walking out on the frozen, you know, on the ice. And I'm calling her and saying, come here, come here, come here. But she won't listen to me. And then you begin to hear this cracking, and she's kind of freaking out. And then, boom, ice breaks. She goes under. And I'm standing there kind of freaking out because that's my dog. And it's supposed to be a hunting dog, but it's like half pet too. And so there's Daisy Duke. She's under the ice, and I see her going by, and she's scratching and clawing with everything she's made of. And she's trying to get out, but she can't because there's this ceiling between. There's this, I mean, she's trapped. And she can't get out. No matter how much she scratches, no matter how much she claws, she can't make it out. She just doesn't have the ability. Now, she walked out on the ice. She fell through. That was her decision. She got there on her own. And now she doesn't have what it takes to get out from under the ice. And then me, as a second or third grader, scared, I just watch her go right on by. To death. Almost. And there you go. And that's our condition. That's where we find ourselves. No matter how much we scratch, no matter how much we claw, no matter how many times you go to church, no matter how many Bible verses you memorize, no matter how good you are, there's just this barrier between us and life, and it's sin, and we can't break it. Now, there's more to the story, okay? It'd be a bummer if we just stopped right there, wouldn't it? All right, let's just all pray. (laughs) There's a pet adoption in the parking lot. No, so... So thank God my dad was with us because he would go with us. He didn't just send the second grader into the woods. Go get him, boy. Here's a gun. You know, he would go with us. And, and so my dad is standing right downstream. And as he sees what's happening and he sees Daisy Duke under the ice and, he, and she's scratching like crazy, he takes the butt of his gun and he breaks through the ice and he reaches down into the freezing cold water and grabs Daisy Duke by the nap of her neck and he brings her up from death to life and sits her on the, on the shore. And he saved her. 
She didn't choose him. He chose her, and he, he was the proactive one. He's the one that broke through the barrier and reached down and brought her to life. And then, and then he didn't bring her up, put her on the shore, and then scold her, how dare you? No. He actually took his hunting coat off and wrapped it around her, dried her off, and put her in the front seat of the car, which that had never happened before, put her in the front seat of the truck and turned the heater on. And that's salvation, that God chooses you, that God comes after you, that God saves you. Now, Daisy Duke had a little part in it. She didn't bite the hand that was saving her, okay? It does say that, that um, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there's the responsibility on us, too, to believe. And, and that's a picture of salvation. And here's the thing, folks. What it should do in your life is free you up. It should free you up. Because if you think that God loves you because of your performance... I'm telling you, that's an exhausting way to live. But instead, the gospel is, is that God demonstrated his love for you. And you know it by his performance on the cross, that he broke through the barrier between you and him. And he's the one that reached out to you. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I love that. It wasn't the pastor's name that was spreading. It wasn't a personality. It wasn't an event. But it was the word of the Lord that was spreading. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of the high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The reason that they could be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit is because men and women were being saved. Now, they had high points in their ministry, right? They teach one weekend, and the whole place is like, hey, come back the next weekend. And they had low points in their ministry, especially when they got kicked out of town. And yet they're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit because the, the thing that mattered most is that men and women were surrendering their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and they were walking with Christ. They were making disciples. And so at the Church of 1122, we will have high points and we will have low points, but we will be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit as long as we are a church that are a bunch of disciples making disciples making disciples. And so far at this church, since the day we opened on September 23rd last year until today, um, 552 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. Amen? And so that's what we're about. <clears throat> now, what I want to point out here is that there's been a major shift, a major shift in church history. And, and one of the dangers of Bible study is that, especially because of the access that we have to information, thanks to, you know, the Google machine, that there's so many Christians that actually already know too much Bible. And what I mean by that, if there's areas of the Bible that you know but you're not applying then guess what? You might need to be more into application than more information. For instance, if you've read through and it says, forgive just as I've forgiven you, we can have a tendency to go, is there anything else? You know, because I don't want to forgive people like you've forgiven me. And sometimes when we do Bible study, we can be so close to the particular verses that we don't sort of take the Bible and back up a little bit and get to see, um, get to see sort of a broader view of what's happening in context. Now, one of the things about the Scripture that, that you should understand as you're going to do Bible study ongoing is you should always let the Bible be commentary for the Bible. Okay, commentaries are great. I, I study commentaries every week. But those are just books written by very smart groups of people. But this is, a, this is a, a, a really a gift to us that is inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. And so, Bible nerds, you're going to love this. What happens historically in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul talks about theologically in other places in the New Testament. So historically, again, he says to the synagogue, all right, you had your chance. Now I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul teases this out theologically. What does that mean theologically? And we'll start in the book of Romans, really from about chapter 4 all the way through chapter 11 in the book of Romans. Um, Paul, Paul just wants the folks to understand that, okay, uh, God's promise to Israel doesn't just mean those people that genetically are sons of Abraham, but all who put their faith in Christ receive the promise that Abraham has, was given. And he gives two primary, two primary illustrations. One, he, he gives like a gardening term. He talks about how the Gentiles are grafted into the rootstock of the family of God. And so again, last two weeks ago, I was like in the grafting capital of the world. And one of the things we did is we learned that they take a rootstock, when they're making wine, they take a rootstock and they plant it. And then whatever kind of grape you want to grow to create the kind of wine that you want to create, you take that type of branch that grows that type of grape and you graft it into the rootstock. You cut a little V in the, in the rootstock, you cut a little V in the branch, you bind them together and you sort of tie it up, and then very quickly the two become one. And so you and I, if you're a Gentile and you believe in Jesus, that we have been grafted into the family of God. And, and it, now it's just one plant, and the, and the root feeds the branches. So if you're a farmer, maybe you like that illustration. The other illustration that uh, Paul primarily uses is one of adoption. That if you are, a, regardless of your descent, regardless of your heritage, if you are a Christian, if you've ever surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, then God has adopted you into his family. And so in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, listen to this picture of the gospel, and he's using, he's using adoption as a picture of the gospel. And again, he's talking theologically in Romans and Galatians, about what's happening historically in Acts chapter 13. So he says this in Romans 8. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. Now, not just children of God, but sons of God. And let me just explain this real quick. In the first century, sons were the only one that received an inheritance. So it, it, it's, it's actually inaccurate to just say sons and daughters there. Um, because essentially what God is saying is, The first century is unjust, but I'm not unjust. And so all of my children, whether you're a son or a daughter, are treated like first century sons. Everybody gets access to the inheritance. And so even though this culture needs some work, I'm, I'm making everyone equal if you're one of my children. And so, so if in the first century you were a female and somebody said, no, but you could be a son, that really meant that you too could be an heir even though nobody else in, in that culture would see you that way. But according to God, he would. So for all who are led by the Spirit are... Spirit of God, our sons or heirs of God, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with them. Now, not only is this adoption thing a really big deal in the first century, but in Rome, it was particularly a big deal. Because in Roman culture in the first century, people would abandon their newborn children. If they didn't want a girl and they had a girl, they would just take her out to the trash heap and just abandon her. Or if there was any kind of defect at all, any kind of skin disease or anything that they thought wasn't just the perfect kid, then it was customary in in Roman society to just take the kid and just abandon them. And so what began to happen is that the Christians began to adopt these abandoned children into their families. And the reason that they began to adopt these abandoned children into their families is because they knew that they had been adopted into the family of God. And they knew that just like God had adopted me, just like God had adopted me into his family, then then we are going to adopt people into our family. And so... What I want to do is I, I want to walk through seven ways that adoption illustrates the gospel. Seven things. Um, just by show of hands, by the way, just like Stacy came and, and, and shared that, that they adopted Parker Brown. How many of you are, have either adopted a child or you were adopted? Anybody in the... Ooh, baby. See, I knew there was a bunch of you. Amen. So, so you, everybody with their hand up, is a picture of the gospel. That when I see what Stacy and Craig did with Parker Brown, it is a picture of the gospel. And now, my, 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 my aim here is not to try to get you to adopt. If God leads you to adopt, then praise God. But we do know that by the message, some of you will kind of get on that road, that God will stir in some of you to begin to move your family towards adopting. And some of you have kind of been wrestling through that and praying through that. And, and we believe that today during this service, God's going to seal that in some of you. And that's why Stacy and her friends, a bunch of adoptive parents, are going to be in the Connect Center at the end just to walk through that. But what I want to really talk about is just how adoption illustrates the gospel. And so number one, the first thing is that children are pursued by the parents. Children are pursued by the parents. That means that I've never met the adopted kid that went and found their parents, you know. It always goes the other way, that the parents go and find the kid. It's not like a kid is door-to-door knocking on the door, like, hey, what do you think? You want to do this? No? Okay, next door. So there is this pursuit by the parents. Secondly, that children are chosen by the parents, that if you are adopted, you are chosen children, that they are chosen by the parents, which means so many things. There's so many implications. One is that there are no tryouts. There are no tryouts. It's not like Craig and Stacy went to South Korea and got six little Korean boys and said, all right, here it goes. It's a new Fox special, six weeks long, and we're going to have a competition every week. All right, week one is who can sleep through the night first, all right? And then at the end, at the end of each week, we're going to meet at a campfire out behind the house, and if you didn't make the cut, we're going to put out your flame, and then you got to go back to the orphanage. That's not how it works. There are no tryouts, and when God adopts us, there's no tryouts. He just reached down and grabbed you, and because here's the thing. Some of you think you still have to try out to stay in the family of God. It's because you don't, you might know the gospel up here, but you don't know the gospel, The gospel is that he chose you. There are no tryouts. The other thing is that the kid doesn't really deserve it. The kid's not doing anything to deserve it. They were just chosen. It's not like Parker Brown, you know, got some glamour photos and came up with a resume and it's him, you know, in his diaper or he's in a little fire truck. It's like, hey, get me, I'm cute. But they just picked him Um, so many times and especially internationally, uh, kids are typically adopted out of a bad situation. 
I mean, it, just, in, just in our context, do you know 40% of children in America will go to bed tonight without a dad? 40%. And so when a kid gets adopted by a, by a loving mom and dad, then here's a kid without a dad, and now they have a dad. And almost every one of the social problems that we have in our country are traced back to a lack of fathers in the home. And so these, these terrible situations are redeemed. The other deal about children being chosen by their parents is that there's not a trial period. And, and all parents in the room, our kids should really thank God that there's not a trial period, right? Because every parent in the room at some point went, I'm going to cash this back out, all right? I don't... I remember JP, we, we had been home for four days. Now, you know, we didn't adopt JP, but he, we'd been home for four days, and, you know, he's like this big, and, and I'm getting him ready for his feeding, and I'm bringing him to Gretchen, and Gretchen raises up out of the bed and looks at me as serious as she could be, and she says, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and there I am. Well, I can't do this, you know? So we've all been there. Every parent in here has, but thank God, when we are adopted into God's family, there's not like a 90-day probationary period. And, and, and it's not plan B. It's not like God made Adam and Eve and then turned his back, and then when he turned back around, he's like, oh, no, they sinned, and now I've got to, you know, what are we going to do? It wasn't plan B. That, that the lamb was slain before the beginning of time. And if you, if you are thinking about adopting, just because it was... Just because it was your second plan chronologically does not mean it was plan B. God has a plan and a purpose for you and that kid. And God knew about it long before you even thought about it. After the 9 o'clock service, a friend of mine um, who attends the 9 o'clock service came up to me and said, Did you know he, I knew he had three sons. And he said, Did you, you know we adopted two of them and then had one naturally? And I was like, I didn't know that. And he goes, yeah. In fact, we began the adoption process on twins, and while we were in the adoption process, his wife got pregnant with the other one. So they went from zero to three, boom, like that, okay? <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and then he said, when, so they're all the same age. One, one naturally, the other two adopted. And then the one that was born naturally came up to the dad when he was about four years old, and said, Daddy, I want to be adopted. And the daddy said, why? And he said, because you always say, we chose that one, we chose that one, but we had that one. So I want to be chosen. Isn't that awesome? Told me that at 9 o'clock service. So (laughs) children are chosen by the parents. Number three, parents pay the price. The parents pay the price. That it's expensive, And the kid doesn't pay anything. From Parker Brown's perspective, it was a free gift. But from Stacey and Craig, it cost a lot. Not just financially, but emotionally and sleep deprivation. I mean, there's a a big price to pay. And you know what else? I've never met the kid that was adopted and the parents went in to make a deal with the kid. All right, we'll front the money, but you better get a paper route and pay us back before you graduate. It doesn't work that way. It's this free gift but it costs somebody something. That's the picture of our salvation, that we've been offered the free gift of eternal life, but it costs God his only begotten son. So uh, the parents pay the price. The fourth thing is that there's a name change that reflects membership in the family, that um, Parker Brown's name was changed to Brown, and now he's a Brown, and he's a 
His name reflects the truth that he's a member of the family. You see, every person on our staff, when they have a kid, uh, before they actually take hold of the kid, whether it's through adoption or natural birth or whatever, I always name them first, all right? So we've, I've named one Festus and uh, Rhoda and Dorcas. And when the Stone, when Blair was pregnant, I was trying to, I wanted them to name their kid Roland. Wouldn't it be awesome, Roland Stone? I think that's brilliant. <laughs> but they, so nobody's picked any of my names yet, but I'm going to keep trying. And then when the Browns, when we found out, you know, they were going to have a kid, I, I was going with Leroy. Because Leroy Brown, when he grows up, he's like, I'm bad, bad Leroy Brown. Here's my song. I mean, how? But nobody went with me. So, <clears throat> but names are a big deal. Parker will always be a Brown, and there's nothing that can ever change that. And names are a big deal for me, too. My son is Joseph Perry Martin IV, and I'm the third. And I consider it a great honor to be named after my dad and his dad. And nobody can ever change that. And you, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, then, then you're, there was a name change. You went from son of wrath to son of God, child of God. You went from enemy of God to the Bible says friend of God. That the word Christian means that you're like Jesus. And so that name change reflects that you're in the family. The fifth thing is that the legal status of the child has changed. That there is documentation in courtrooms that prove that this kid belongs now to this family. And when you and I became a Christian, there was a legal transaction that happened. Theologians call it justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we could become his righteousness, that we would be made his righteousness, that, that we are legally justified before God. That means if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, that when God, King, Judge, looks at you, he sees the perfect life of his son, Jesus. That's why no matter what you've done or will do, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, that day you walk into heaven, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That when he looks at your sin docket in the courtroom of judgment, he sees perfection, the perfect life of his son. And that, that's what he sees. There's a legal status. Now, the sixth thing is that a love relationship ensues. This is so important. This is so important. That when you adopt someone into your family, it's not just a legal transaction, it's also a love transaction. That when, when Parker Brown is 12 years old and I say, Parker, who's your mom and daddy? He's not going to go and pull out a court document and say, well, according to this document, I mean, it has been notarized, I am a Brown. No. He's going to talk about his mama and daddy. That that's what it means when it says that we've been give, given the... Um, the spirit of the son that cries out, Abba, Father, that we've been given the spirit of sonship, that God loves us and wants to know us and be in relationship with us. So Jesus, 189 times in the New Testament, calls God Father. When he teaches the disciples to pray, he prays, Our Father. And the good Orthodox Jews would have been like, Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. It's Elohim. It's Lord God or Sovereign God. And Jesus is saying, Okay, that's true. You've been... There's a legal transaction, so you're justified before him. But it's even more than that. He's adopted you into his family, and there is this love relationship. That word Abba, it's like a, um, it's kind of a slang word for, for dad. Where I'm from, you know, from South Carolina, we would say daddy, like D-I-D-D-I. That's my daddy. We don't say father. You know, that's not how we talk. So if you've got like a pet name for your dad, God's going, yeah, that's the kind of relationship I'm looking for, and listen, I know some of you have some jacked up dads. I have a great dad. I have a great earthly father. 
But God is not, God's not a reflection of your earthly dad. He's the perfection of what it means to be your dad. It, it reminds me, when we were building this place, we had some dumpsters right out here in the corner and then in the back. And there's a guy who's a part of the family of 1122 named Eddie. He owns the haircut place right up here where you can get your haircut for $11.22, all right? It's a good deal. So he owns that place. Well, before that, he would come up here and volunteer and help us all the time. And he was building out his new, his new barbershop over there. And so he would come and get some scrap wood out of the dumpsters, you know? And he's also, not only can he do hair, but he's also like a carpenter. Him, He can do it all, all right? And so he was getting wood out, and some of the workers here came to him and said, Sir, they've asked that nobody take any of the wood out of here. I don't think they want anybody to take the stuff. And Eddie, with like a two-by-four on his back, goes, Oh, you don't understand. My dad owns all this. You know why? Because he knew he was a son of God. He, he, that, that God is his father. Now, now, don't be stealing stuff out of my church, okay? I'm not saying that you can, like, be a klepto because you got a verse, but... But that's what that means, that, that when I would go fishing with my dad growing up, look, I just knew he was my dad. And if somebody said, prove he's your dad, I wouldn't get my birth certificate. I was just, no, that's my dad. I'm named after him. He loves me. I remember going fishing and just be in our 73 Chevy with the bench seat. And I remember just standing in the seat, looking over at my dad. And that's right, standing, right? We would just... I mean, who wore a seatbelt? You know, that's. In fact, I remember my dad saying, "Son, tuck those things down in the seat. That's gonna hurt somebody flinging all around here." So we tuck those down, and I just knew he had it under control. He was gonna take care of me. Did he give me everything I wanted? Absolutely not. Did he discipline me? Oh boy, he could teach you a class. Okay, but he loved me, and in the same way, your heavenly Father loves you and wants you to love Him. That did you get that that kind of relationship going? And then the seventh and final one, and this is, this is really important, that when you adopt a kid into your family, that, that, that adopted kid is a fellow heir with their siblings. That kid is a fellow heir with their siblings. First of all, they're an heir, that all that is the parents will one day go to the children, whether you're adopted or not. It doesn't matter. All the kids are just on the same level. It's not like it's not like the natural-born kids get a bigger room and the adopted kids get a smaller room. That's not how it works whatsoever. And, and I love this part. If you're adopted into the family, you're not only adopted into that relationship with your mom and dad, yes and amen, but if there are other children in the family, regardless of origin or DNA or whether they were adopted or natural-born, it's irrelevant, but you are also adopted into the family. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ, and you need to hear this, okay, especially us as individualistic Americans, that if you are a Christian, if you've been adopted into the family of God, then we are your brothers and sisters, and that's a big reason why you're supposed to be a part of the family of church. It's why on June the 2nd, we're going to gather out at the beach and we're going to celebrate the over 300 people that have signed up to be baptized. Not only do we celebrate they've been adopted into the family, into a relationship with God, but that's our brothers and sisters. And that's why we're making a whole day of it. That's why it's bring a lawn chair and a tent and a cooler and fried chicken. Look, baptism happens better with fried chicken, all right? It's uh, like second hesitations. I can't remember exactly, but it's in there. And we're just getting, you know what we're doing? It's like a big family reunion. It's almost like another birthday. And we've got some more brothers and sisters entering into our family. And so all those things are true. That picture of adoption is a picture of the gospel. So in Galatians chapter 4, 
Paul says it this way. I want you to think through those seven things as I read these verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, fathers. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are no longer a slave. And that word slave means like bondservant. It might even be better for us to understand this way. So you're no longer an employee, but a son. That's why in Romans he says, you did not have the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Because here's what a lot of you need to hear, especially if you've ever surrendered your life to Christ. That God's not looking for employees. He's looking for sons and daughters. He's not looking for people to come and work hard to impress him to earn something. He's looking for children. For you to come to him as a child. And you know how I know this? In Luke 15, Jesus teaches one of the most famous parables. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. And there's a dad who represents God. And he's got two sons. And they're both sinful. One has the sin of religion and one has the sin of rebellion. And the younger rebellious son says, Dad, I like your stuff more than I love you. I wish you were dead. Give me your stuff. And the dad gives him his inheritance. So you know it's a different dad, okay? Because if I went to my dad and said, Dad, give me my inheritance, he said, I'll tell you what I'll give you, you know, and we be back to that discipline sermon, okay? But, <clears throat> but this dad just gives him his portion of the inheritance, and then the Bible says that that son goes off and squanders it all on wild living. And then when he's at the bottom of the barrel, I mean, when he has hit rock bottom, the Bible says that this kid comes to his senses. You see, he was feeding pigs, and he was jealous of what the pigs were eating because he was hungry, and the pigs had better food than him. And now, I I don't know if there are any pig feeders in here. If so, God bless you. But if you were Orthodox Jew, this would be the worst of the worst jobs you could ever have. In my world, it would be the equivalent of me being the water boy for the Gator football team, okay? Now, I know there's a lot of Gators in here, and that's fine for you, but not in my house. Like, we don't even drink Gatorade. We drink Powerade, all right? That's how bad it is. So, I'm just telling you. So, if I were there, I'd be like, what have I done? So, that's what the kid is. And it, the Bible says he comes to his senses, and he remembers, and he figures out, the hired hands in my dad's farm eat better than I do, so here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad and I'll make a deal. And on his way back, he begins to go over his kind of confession and apology speech. And it goes something like this, Dear Dad, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Could you please bring me back on as one of your hired servants? Because he's thinking, at least least I can sleep indoors and have something to eat, and then I can just work there. But the Bible lets us know that God's not looking for employees. He's looking for children. And so the Bible says that the dad sees the son coming back up the driveway, even from a long way off, and the dad, who represents God in the story, goes running to the son. And in the first century, Jewish men did not run. I thought I'd get an amen from Ryan Stone. Come on, baby. That's why we don't run, because, you know, it's biblical. And so, because it was humiliating for a grown man to run to somebody else. People would run to you. You didn't run to them. And, but this guy, this dad humbles himself, and he runs to his son, And then the son is covered in filth and pig slop. And the dad says, bring me a robe. And he takes the robe of righteousness and he wraps it around his son. So when anybody looks at the condition of his son, they don't see the filth in there. They just see the covering of the righteousness of his dad. And then the Bible says that he he says, hey, put some shoes on the boy. 
because slaves went barefoot, but sons and daughters wore shoes. So he puts, sons, he puts shoes on there, and then he takes the signet ring, the family ring. The only way you get to wear one of these rings, a signet ring, is you have to be in the family. And he puts the signet ring back on the finger of his son. And essentially what he's saying is, I am adopting my son back into my family. So when the son gets there and he starts to try to give, make his deal, okay, dad, I'm sorry, I sinned against heaven and I sinned against you. How about I just become like one of your hired servants to dad's like, shut up, I'm not even hearing that. All right, I'm not looking for more employees. I'm looking for my son. And so that's how we are invited to come to God. That God is not a God of abandonment, a God of rejection, a God of wrath. God is a God of love. Is he just? Yes and Amen. And yet he runs to us, and he does not want us just to come in and try to do better and try harder and attend more and learn more Bible verses, but he wants to adopt us into his family and put his name on us and cover us in his righteousness. And then the Bible says that they throw a party for this son because he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he is found. And so here's the point. The point is this. The point is that... Salvation doesn't mean that you inherit God because of who you are. That's what the Jews in the synagogue believed. That's what some of you believe. Some of you say, well, I've always been a Christian because my daddy was Catholic. Or I'm a Baptist, so that's like the most Christian you can be. Or I'm Episcopalian or whatever. And that's irrelevant. Regardless of how you were brought up or whatever your DNA is, you don't, you don't inherit a right relationship with God. But salvation means that God adopts you into his family because of who he is, not because of what you've done. It's the free gift of salvation that God does not abandon. God adopts. And adoption is a picture of what it means to be saved. That when you get adopted, you say, okay, you're my dad. I'm not in charge anymore. I'm surrendering my life to you, trusting that you paid the full price, the full price to bring me into the family. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Hey, if you're here this morning and you are ready to be adopted into the family of God, you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, would you just raise your hand and say, God, I'm ready. I surrender my life to you. I want to call you Father. I want my sins forgiven. I want to walk in that freedom. And I know you paid the full price. If you've got your hand up and you just talk to your dad, there's not a magic prayer or incantation It's not a hand in the air that saves you, but God is saving you in this very moment. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you and I praise you for those that are being adopted into your family, into our family together now. God, we praise you. We join with the angels and praise you. And God, I pray that you would saturate this place with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are far away from God, Lord, I pray that they would come to their senses and run home. And Lord, you'd meet them on the way. And then, God, for those of us who have been adopted at some point in our life, we surrendered our life to you, God. Would you remind us that you are our dad? And so, God, when we screw up, we don't have to run from you, but we can run to you because the tryouts are over. There are no tryouts that we've been adopted. We're in the family. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know you intimately as Father because of what Christ, our big brother, did on our behalf. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, if you would please stand. We respond to the gospel every week. We respond by singing the gospel. We are going to sing the Lord's Prayer. We're going to start out singing Our Father. The reason we can sing Our Father is because we have been adopted into His family. 
we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around or the giving kiosk back there. And we respond by running to our Father and kneeling at the altar and spending time with Him. Let us respond.